All right, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Uh, this Advent season, we'll be looking at Matthew's chapter, Matthew, singular, chapters 1 and 2 uh, over the four weeks of Advent. Uh, this first week, we're going to be looking at the genealogy of Christ. Um, and truthfully, it by itself could easily be three or four or even five sermons. But uh, good news for you, we're going to do it all in one day. All right. And so, who said what? That was a small child. That's honest. I appreciate that. That's true. Um, so, all that to say, we're not, gonna, we're not going to come close to mining the depths of what is contained in this genealogy. And so, one of the questions that I have for us is, is, is all of Scripture truly profitable for us? And let me tell you how you know, if you believe that. Do you skip the genealogies when you read? Well, yeah, I do too. I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here and lie. Uh, there's times where I, I think, man, this is going to be an easier day because I've got the genealogies to skip through. But we do ourselves a disservice when we have that overall attitude toward that. And there should be a point at some point in our sanctification and maturation as Christians where you tackle a genealogy. You just go through and, and try to figure out why are those names there? Uh, there's often a, a formula. They call it the begats formula. And it usually is the father and then the son's name. Uh, and so it's real easy to kind of pick up on when something is trying to be said to us when that pattern breaks. And we'll see that in Matthew. Or if somebody gets left out, there's often a, a polemical or a key comment being made by, by that person's name being left out. And we're going to see that as well. There's also something that happens when the math don't work. When it says, hey, there's, these are three sets of 14 generations. And if you do the math, you're going to find out, no, there's two sets of 14 and one of 13. What does that mean? And so all of it, it becomes actual theology. It becomes, it becomes something worth our time. And I think that the genealogy of Christ is one of the places where it pays probably the largest dividends for us to take time uh, during, especially this season, to look long at what is Matthew trying to teach us with the names that he's included, the names that he's left out, and the math that just don't seem to work. And so as we go through this, I, I hope that uh, that we will benefit from having done that. But even what we're going to do here this morning is not going to come close enough. So I would encourage you, this may be a great time for you to take time to tackle a genealogy for the holiday season and really dive into the names that are included and ask, Lord, what are you trying to teach us with what, what you have here? All right, so this morning what we want to do is, is, is we want to understand that Matthew's genealogy of Jesus evidences God's sovereign commitment to our salvation through mercy and grace, justice and judgment, and faithfulness and redemption. Let me read that again. Matthew's genealogy of Jesus evidences God's sovereign commitment to our salvation through mercy and grace, justice and judgment, and faithfulness and redemption. Listen to what uh, scholar Frederick Dale Bruner says about this genealogy. I think this is a brilliant quote. He says, Matthew, Matthew's genealogy is a work of theological craftsmanship more than it is a simple historical list. It is not only genealogy, it's theology. It's not only archive, it is doctrine. It is not only history, it is sermon. So with that in mind, uh, I want to look at just the first sentence for a moment. Um, and let me read that, and then we'll talk about it for a second. It says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
the son of Abraham. Now this opening sentence in the gospel according to Matthew, it, it contains essentially an eternity's worth of theology. We could spend a whole bunch of time just talking about why in the world does he have the name Jesus, which we'll get to a little bit later as Joseph is told this needs to be his name. We could also talk for a long time about why it is that he's called Christ, which is actually not his last name as it turns out. It is a title, and it is a title of great importance to us. It means Messiah or anointed one. And that would have meant a whole bunch to that first century group of people who would have heard it, especially the Jewish folks or anyone who knew scripture and knew to be looking for this coming one. And then it goes on to describe him as the son of David. Well, that in and of itself tells us that he's not just anyone. He particularly is within the lineage of the Davidic king. And why would that have been important to the people of the first century? Because because their politics were, were all tidy, right? Much better than ours. No, actually very similar to ours. I don't know who the first century Donald Trump was, but I'm sure he was there. And so <clears throat> they would have been very comforted to know that the Davidic king was coming. This, the Davidic king would reign and finally at long last bring an end to all of the insanity. Now, they were a little confused as to when that was going to happen, whether that was going to be between now or in the not yet, or some blend of both. And for him to be called the son of Abraham also signaled to them that there was also a kingdom that was coming. What kind of kingdom? A kingdom of terra firma and dirt? Like what is missing on our land? <laughs> no, no, a kingdom of people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would be represented. And that is beautiful news to us, especially we of Gentile pagan lineage, most of us. And so, so they would have seen just in this sentence, this incredible declaration of, of God's promises that Jesus, which means, by the way, and we'll get to this more later in another sermon, it means Yahweh saves, the covenant God redeems, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah who would come to make all things right and all things new, the son of David, the eternal Davidic king, the one who would reign in justice and peace and grace and mercy, the son of Abraham, the one who would usher in at long last the kingdom of every tongue, tribe, and nation. The one who would at long last bring together that which had been torn utterly apart by sin. And he would restore all of that to the one who was due the glory, which is God the Father. So what we have here in this first sentence is not just an introduction to the genealogy itself. See, that we, we, we are thrown off a little bit by the book of the genealogy. That Greek word, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this, uh, would actually translate into origin or beginning or even creation. It harkens all the way back to Genesis 2-4. And it lets us know that this is the beginning of a new creation. Something new is happening and unfolding here. And it's not just about the genealogy. It's about the whole of the gospel. This is the introduction to the entire gospel according to Matthew. And you should not read any of Matthew without always keeping this sentence in sight. So that helps to just bring us forward to now what the genealogy is going to teach us. If you would turn back to the text, verses 2 through 6, we'll take the first section. It's going to sound like I'm speaking in tongues for a second. 
on some of these names, and I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but just stay with me because they mean something. It says this, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king, and David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. So if we take just a moment to kind of survey that and say, all right, as we look at this, did, did the pattern break at all? Did the begats pattern break up at all? Did, was there any inclusion of someone other than just father or son? Wouldn't take us long to figure out there's, there's four women that are named here. And there's an interesting, interesting reason that they would be named, especially if Matthew's purpose was to try to establish with his first century audience that this was the pure king. If you were going to write a lineage of someone famous and your intent was to fool people into worshiping him, what kind of genealogy would you write? See, you would take and stick the stuff back in the suitcase that didn't belong sticking out, just like everybody else would. But see, Matthew's not trying to fool anyone. What, what Matthew actually is doing, because again, remember, this is not just history, this is theology. He's teaching us that there is a God who is merciful and gracious, and that he will include those who seem to have no warrant to be included. First name that we come to is Tamar. Any of you know your Bible history, you know that she actually pretended to be a prostitute in order to fool Judah so that she could continue her own lineage, right? And so, wait a minute, why would you include her? Why mention her at all? Why not hope that most people, like the rest of us, don't read their Bibles very often and don't know anything about Genesis? Why not just hope that you could kind of get away with it and smooth right over it? Why throw her out there and make people stop and go, wait a minute, Tamar? Why is she in here? Because not only did she pretend to be a prostitute, but what kind of woman was she? She was a Canaanite, for crying out loud. I don't know if you know anything about the Canaanites, but the Canaanites and God's people didn't get along real well. And here she sits very early in the genealogy of Jesus, the Davidic king, the one who will usher in the kingdom. Then you come to another name, Rahab. Well, who's Rahab? Well, she too was a prostitute, and she was a Jerichoite, for crying out loud. I remember we, we let her live because she was nice enough to lie for us. Well, lie, okay, all right. Well, not tell the whole truth and pretend that some of our people weren't there. And she, she being a Jerichoite, what right would she have to be included in the lineage of Christ himself? I mean, was it not enough to just let her live? her and her family, but to let her be a part of the Davidic lineage? What kind of God does that? Maybe if he knew what she really was, he would not talk to her or include her in such a way. Where's that been said before? I think you heard it last week from Luke 7. So God includes her as well. And then we read on a little further and we run into Ruth. Now, Ruth was not uh, in any way, shape, or form a bad character, but she was a Moabite. Now, remember, the Moabites weren't allowed in worship for 10 generations. 
They were almost completely destroyed and wiped off the face of the earth with the exception of her and a few others. But her uniquely as she was in the lineage of Christ. And then the last one, Matthew doesn't even bother to use her name. He says, she's the wife of Uriah. Well, who's she? Well, she was Bathsheba. Now, she more than likely was a Jew by lineage. However, was considered to be a Hittite by marriage. So she too would have been considered a Gentile. And what did she do? What did she participate in? Well, she participated in something that almost blew the kingdom into a billion pieces. It was very costly. And yet, here she stands in the lineage of Christ. Now, what does that do for us? Why do these names matter to us? Well, one, it should bring us great hope. It should bring us great hope that women such as this, who would have been considered in the first century as Gentile women who have done the things that they've done as less than dogs, right? Remember that whole situation where, um, where the woman is, is pestering Jesus. She's a Canaanite, if you remember. And she says, heal my daughter. And he won't even seem to pay her any mind until she says, yes, but even the dogs receive the crumbs as they fall from the master's table. And Jesus turns and says, greater faith have I, have I not seen in all of Israel. So the good news is, is that sinners like them and you and I can be included in the lineage of Jesus. The good news is, is that God is concerned to dwell with us as, not as we are guilty, but as we are redeemed. Remember, and remember this always, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, none whatsoever, and nor should you and I. He also doesn't take pleasure in watching the wicked twist and turn, cut off from him, suffering in the midst of their sin with no hope whatsoever. He takes no pleasure in that either, which is why he comes in the person of Christ, to redeem as only he can because it was well proven we couldn't save ourselves. So these women's names are very important to us. These women's names are an act of mercy and grace that, that is just unbelievable. Why would you include them? Those of you who know anything about politics, what do most politicians do with that weird cousin that crazy uncle or that gay daughter, but try to remove them from view and keep them out of the spotlight so that no one knows about the darkness in their lineage. Here Matthew says, no, it is the darkness in the lineage that is your hope. It is this brokenness square in the midst of the genealogy of Christ himself that says you can be saved. Well, what does that mean for us? I don't know about you, but at the Thanksgiving dinner I went to, uh, it wasn't all saints. And that includes me in some respects. And, and it wasn't all great people. And it wasn't all filled with hope. And it wasn't all easy, as are most family gatherings. And how many of you have within your lineage someone who casts a dispersion over the family name and doesn't quite live up to the goodness that ought be in any family. 
How many of you have those in your family that you kind of look at and go, I don't know that they can be saved? Well, here's the good news. Yes, they can. Yes, they can because of what Christ has done, not because of what they have done. They're not beyond saving because of the mistakes they have made. They're not beyond saving because you think they're not salvageable. And this should actually do something to give us hope as we have unique opportunities this time of year as families often gather together and there is often a sea of great hurt and distance between us. We have an opportunity this holiday season to see things redeemed and forgiven and, and chasms crossed because of the one who came to make it possible, who had him in his lineage. See, we have hope because of what Christ has done and who Christ has included and who Christ has said is worthy, not because of what we have done or who we declare to be worthy. Listen at what Martin Luther says about this aspect of the genealogy. <laughs> he says, this happened, meaning the women who are included, so that Christ could show us how friendly he is to poor sinners, that they could understand a little and say, ah, Christ is such a man that he is not ashamed of sinners. Yes, he even includes them in his family tree. If the Lord does this, we should not scorn anyone. For otherwise, he would have included honorable women such as Sarah. He did this so that we could see God's grace to sinners, that we would follow him and not be ashamed, but weave ourselves with sinners in order to help. For that reason, these women are listed here. So often, we in the Reformed community can be very, very guilty of letting our theology actually drive us from what our theology ought to drive us to, which is weaving our lives with sinners, which is to actually share the gospel uh, through both word and deed, uh, opening up our lives, opening up our homes, opening up our confidence, opening up our theology, opening up our Bibles, opening up our pocketbooks, opening up all that we have, given that is in fact what God has done in sending Christ, by the way. We should be, of all people, given our theology, the most evangelistic people on the planet, and are we? No. No, we're, we're, we're not. And I am ashamed of myself in this regard. This isn't just to cast dispersions upon you. I don't weave my life in with sinners as I ought and, and have any sort of confidence. I, I am often surprised when the Lord grants someone the light of redemption. What? Was I as surprised when I was redeemed? I know there's some other people who were pretty surprised and they're still surprised and still wondering. But the truth is, why do we not have more confidence given all that we know about who Christ is and what he has done and what he's accomplished? How did we get so far and think ourselves so holy, so righteous, so unable to be touched by the darkness, to be bothered with it? I'm speaking of my own soul here. Why are we not more confident and willing to interweave ourselves into the lives of those who need to see this the most? Because remember, the king came to set up a kingdom, and we're going to learn more about the Abrahamic covenant in January, 
but to set up a kingdom that would bless every tongue, tribe, and nation. Is that what this room looks like right now? Is that what our city looks like? Are we representative of our city as we sit here? No, it's, let me be fair. I've done multicultural, multi-ethnic work, and it's a lot harder than you think it is. It's a lot harder than I ever thought it would be. It is, it is almost impossible except for one thing. And what is that one thing? Jesus himself, the God who dwells with us, who makes that possible if we are willing to submit. Problem is, sometimes I'm not sure we're all that willing to submit because of our idols of safety and security and our fear that the God who says he is there is not. We are afraid to have it tested as if it could be tested, as if it were principles and, and axioms, as if it were some sort of simple math. Did we learn nothing from Job? It's not simple math, is it? And so it's not something that we are going to prove because we sit down and, and, and give someone a reasoned argument. Remember, my daughter has taught me the greatest theology I've ever learned, which is this, I don't care. No axiom, no apologetic will overcome that statement. Only the spirit can break a hard heart that has become that hardened. And guess what we do too when we hear stuff like this, when we hear, hey, you should interweave your life with sinners. We take the same position Kimberly does. We say, yeah, I, I, I don't care. I don't care uh, because I'm going to heaven anyway. My ticket's punched, bro. I don't need that. I don't need you. I don't need you trying to make me feel bad about myself. Hear what I'm not saying. I'm not asking you to act outside of your gift set. I'm not asking you to act outside of your influence. I'm not asking you to go and get yourself killed in Syria. What I am asking you to do is at least pray and ask the Lord how you might be a better reflection of who he is and what this season really is about instead of all of the other banal nonsense that has crept in and syncretized all that we have become. I cannot wait for the day in this church when we can have someone honestly join because they have become a Christian because they were so compelled by the glory of the Lord as displayed in all of us. Would that we could have such fruit in this place. Would that that would be the true heart of the Advent season for us. Let's turn back to the text and look at the second section of genealogy. <laughs> this is a harder section, would be a harder section for you to study in some respects because now we're getting into the Davidic kings and there's some folks who get left out. And there's some names that are actually a little different than how they appear in the same uh, version of this in 1 Chronicles 3. And so I'm not going to get into all of that, but I want to make a couple of notes to you just to, again, emphasize what is it that Matthew's trying to communicate and what he's trying to show us here is that God's justice and judgment actually further redemption. They don't end it. They don't cut it off. It actually helps to purify, which is why his discipline is such a sweet thing to us. Let's pick it up in verse 7. It says, And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, 
and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportion to Babylon. Now here it's a different field in that first set, right? We don't have anybody mentioned that's kind of out of order. The begats kind of carries along just as it would in Genesis, except there's this thing at the end that tells us something about where this is all leading. And so these are the Davidic kings who are named. Uh, this comes from 1 Chronicles 3, 10 through 17, except some folks got left out. And I just want to highlight them real quick. Uh, you'll have to, to study them more on your own. Who gets left out is between Joram and Uzziah is Ahaziah, Johash, and Amaziah. Now, the reason that they get left out, I think, and, and as do many other scholars, is because they were in legion with Ahab and Jezebel and um, Atahalia, who were all trying to seize the kingdom for their own purposes. Remember, they were trying to cut off the Davidic kingship. Remember the war that was between God's prophet, singular, and the prophets of Baal. Remember how Jezebel threatened to kill him and slaughter any and all other prophets, and the Lord had to preserve a remnant. Remember that there was much intrigue and political strife and seeking to seize that which was not for human hands to ever try to seize. So in leaving these three men out, essentially, Matthew is saying, who? Who are, who are we talking about? It would have caused people to say, why are these guys not in there? And he would have said, who? Who? Why? They're not important, if you remember, because they were swallowed by the sands of history. What they sought to do, they were unable to accomplish. They joined the lineage of Hitler and Stalin and many others who sought to change the face of this world but ultimately were unable because there is a sovereign God. They could only go so far. Doesn't answer the question of why they were allowed to go as far as they were, but praise God they can't go as far as they would like to. The others who are left out is a little more complex, and these are left out actually between, at the end, Josiah and Jeconiah, and they are Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, and Zedekiah. Now, there's some uh, difficulty here because names got kind of changed and moved around for these guys. Uh, but most importantly, these were essentially the evil kings who led all of God's people into exile. And they are not mentioned because they don't matter. Because again, what matters is that it was the sovereign Lord who was issuing justice and judgment upon his people. And if it was he who was holding the sword, then it was he alone who could bring them out of exile. Amen? And that's what we're being told here, is that it was, though man meant it for evil, God was able to turn and use it for good. So much good, in fact, that they could be listed within the genealogy and left out for a reason. Now, is Matthew starting to hedge his bets here? Does he leave out the bad kings? Will any of you heard of Manasseh? 2 Kings 21, he may be the worst of them all. And his name gets mentioned here. You have a mix of good kings and bad kings. And what does that tell us? What does that teach us during this Advent season as we are struggling to, to feel safe in this world? As we are struggling to see, how is this going to turn out? As we struggle to see, is there any hope at all for our 
political system or the political systems of the world as day in and day out, we are hit with yet another mass shooting or some other authority doing something they shouldn't do and somebody else saying something crazy and a whole other people group being rejected. Well, what does this tell us? It tells us this very simply, kings rise and fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Kings will come and go, good and bad, and they cannot bring to pass, no matter how hard they try, not even in their obedience. Any of you who know anything about Josiah, the reforms that he instituted in the breath of fresh air that was given to the people of God during his reign, it ended. And who came after him? Those sap suckers that led us into exile. The reforms didn't take. And so here we have a picture of God's ultimate sovereignty in his justice and his judgment. No, they will not get away with it. And no, it will not cost the people of God their redemption. The word of the Lord continues. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this passage. He says, a line of kings of mixed character, not one of them perfect, and some of them as bad as bad could be. Three are left out altogether. Even sinners who were only fit to be forgotten were in the line of this secession. And this shows how little can be made of being born of the will of man or the will of the flesh. In this special line of descent, salvation was not of blood nor of birth. Again, we say, how near does Jesus come to our fallen race by his genealogy? Do you recognize that God's justice and judgment actually helps to preserve the redemption of his people? Do, do you receive his discipline as a loving stroke that helps you to come closer to him, not be driven further from him? That's really important, and we've said this in here before. Which way do you run when you sin? Because that evidence is all that you believe. It evidences all of your theology in one moment. Everything you believe is evidence in that one act when you have messed up, if you run from the throne of grace, what does that say you believe about Christ's finished work for you? That it is unfinished and it didn't take. And instead of running to the throne to receive what you need in a time of trouble, mercy, and grace in lavish measure, instead of running to that throne, which Christ purchased for you eternally, it doesn't change. See, we know who we really are when we, when we find ourselves outside of God's grace and mercy, it seems, when we feel like the sword of judgment is about to fall, when God's discipline ought to drive us to him as a loving father instead of from him. And even sending the people into exile, he was drawing them closer to himself than maybe they had ever been in history. Because in being in exile, they were stripped of all the accoutrements, all of the, the, the stuff that was supposed to adorn the simple means of grace. All of the nonsense is gone. And all they had was their own devotion. All they had was the Lord himself being with them in that exile. Let's turn back to the text and read the last portion. 
beginning in verse 12, it says, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to, Bab- uh, to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Now, there's no real break in the pattern except when you get to Joseph. And we'll talk more about him next time. He and Mary both. But there's not a whole lot to learn from the names that are there other than that we see that even the deportation did not cut off the genealogy. It did not cut off God's grace in any way, shape, or form. In fact, God's faithfulness to his promised redemption continued in spite of the darkness into which they fell. And what we see is that God's purposes cannot be thwarted by the sins of man, kings, or prostitutes. And that is good news to us, that the goodness of God cannot be changed in any way, shape, or form, that his mission of redemption cannot in any way, shape, or form be taken from us, that we, as promised children, we will be saved. Now, for those of you who are parents, this is great news indeed, as there will be moments as you look upon your child and think them demon-possessed or minions of the devil himself, as you wonder how in the world did you become what you are given that you grew up with us who are so Spartan in pre-Depression era? How can you be entitled when we fed you gruel day in and day out? That's, I, we didn't do that entirely to some extent. And so, so as you wonder how in the world all your efforts did not produce the fruit that you thought it would, there's good news for you. There's great news for you. God can reach into the darkness with which you cannot go. He can change that heart of stone that you can have no impact upon, it would seem at times. Be faithful in teaching your children to love the Lord all the days of their life. Do not get me wrong. Don't hear me wrong. Don't throw up your hands and say, well, Cameron said, I can can just watch Netflix and chill. I don't have to fool with y'all. You raise yourselves. God's got you from here. All right, good luck. It's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is be obedient, but don't think that your obedience can do what the good kings couldn't do. Don't think that your obedience could do what someone born of the line of the greatest Jews of all couldn't do. Recognize that only God can do the saving. And that is really important because that's what this season is about, isn't it? Is that God came to dwell with us. He came to redeem us, to save us, to for Jesus to be called the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, who came to make essentially all things new. Now, just a brief comment on the math of this. I can't get into all of it, but this last section really only comes down to 13 generations. And why, where's the missing generation? Well, it's here, it's you. You are the continued lineage of Christ. You are the continuation of the genealogy. You are what Christ came to purchase and make his own. We, the church, 
are ambassadors of reconciliation, of this eternal Davidic king, of this kingdom that should be represented by every tongue, tribe, and nation. It means that we have been given something that we are to do, and that is to continue to display this Advent truth. That God came to dwell with us, and he did that through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We who are being transformed into that image, we ought be anyway. We who are growing and being sanctified, we who are displaying, even in our suffering, the glory of God. See, we are the ones who've been left to carry it out. There's a reason that we are between the now and the not yet, and we didn't all just get raptured, as it were, on up into heaven. Why this between the now and the not yet? Why this carrying on? Was it so that you could live long enough to see the iPhone 7? Live long enough to see the tyranny of cable finally broken so you could choose your own stations for crying out loud, I just want ESPN, not all that comes with it. Thus, I am a sling TV person. Is, it, is that it? Is it to continue in banality? Is it, is, it to, is it to just exist until he shows up again? Was he just fire insurance? No. Nor are you to be put under a bushel. Nor are you not to be the preservative that salt ought be to make sure that there continues to be a witness in a world that is growing louder and louder and louder in saying, I don't want to hear that story anymore. You do realize that it is growing in its den and that it grows louder. Even sometimes it seems like our own family members say, don't talk to me about religion. I don't want to hear that anymore. And there, there's a growing strength that people now have to push against it, right? Because they're more and more in mass. Is that bad news? No, actually, that's good news. Because now it's time for the real light to shine. Now it's time for those who are really remnant, covenant people, to evidence the glory of God in a way that can have an impact that is generations and generations and generations long. The genealogy continues. Remember, is God eager to come back? Is he eager to send Christ back? Or does he, is he being patient, as 2 Peter 3 would say? And why is he being patient? So that you can finally, at long last, recite from memory the genealogy from Matthew? No, he, he waits because he wants the family to grow larger and larger for the kingdom to get bigger and bigger and more tongues and more tribes and more nations and more glory to come into being. Now, what are we doing to participate in that? Because that is what Advent is really about. All of the other stuff is pretty. All of the other stuff is nice. I'll take any gift you want to give me. All of the other stuff is fun, not so much eggnog on my part, but pumpkin spice lattes and all. All that stuff's great, but it ain't what it's about. And in fact, if we're not careful, all that stuff can be a distraction. 
all of that stuff can actually carry us further away instead of being potentially ways in which we engage the world in a way that displays the glory of the Lord. Mark Ross, uh, who is at Erskine College in his short volume called Let's Study Matthew says this, by continuing the genealogy after the deportation, Matthew is showing that God remains faithful to his covenant promises. Despite the sins of the people, great David's greater son has come at last to establish the greater and everlasting kingdom. Thanks be to God. So my question for you as we begin this Advent is what does it really mean to you? And that's worth thinking about, isn't it? Because there's so much that has crept in on us and so, so much syncretization, meaning so much that has bled in and made, it, made us think, well, why aren't we doing this here? Some of you may be thinking, you goofballs. Jesus was born in April. Advent. Well, you're right. But this is the time of year when most people get it, and it's a good time to talk about Jesus coming, and we don't not talk about him the rest of the year. And some of you may be thinking, well, if you guys are so in Advent, where's all the stuff? We don't have poinsettias. We don't have candles. What is wrong with you? Well, do we really need all that extra for the lovely word, for the table set, for, for, for the ordinary means of grace that reminds us this is a year-long reality and not just something that we do once a year? See, that's the trap, isn't it? All of that stuff is distraction and trap. Don't complain about us not sharing the gospel, which is actually clear as to what we are supposed to be doing. Sorry, I didn't mean that. We, we, we are far more concerned with all these other trappings, aren't we? If we're not careful. So what does the season mean to you? What, what has most shaped your understanding of what this is, this Advent? And are you participating in it? Really participating in a biblical way that will bring glory to the Lord our God? Which, if you remember... He is most glorified and solely glorified when lost sinners come home. Remember, the party breaks out when one lost sheep makes it in. Remember the party he threw for the prodigal son. Remember, that's the celebration, not all this other nonsense. So how are you contributing to the unfolding genealogy of Christ? What is your role as an ambassador? How are you using your gifts? We're all different. And if you don't know, then we need to talk about that. We need to, if you have a, a yearning desire, it's, and remember, it's not technique. I'm not going to hold a class, evangelism one, two, three. And by the third step, everybody's a Christian. No, it's not going to happen. And evangelism actually is a trap because it's often spoken of as a separate thing. No, evangelism ought to be interweaved in everything we do. It should be an aspect, an, an idea, a, a bedrock of everything we are and do, not a separate program that has a set of techniques. No. Are there some good ways to get to it? Yes. I'm not decrying those at all. But there's no power in the simplicity of the technique or the formation of the steps. There's power in the word. There's power in the Christ who came. Word made flesh. Amen? So, what do we learn from Matthew 1? 1 through 17. It teaches us that God sovereignly keeps his promises through three things, mercy and grace, 
as was clearly displayed in the inclusion of the four women in Jesus' genealogy. Remember, they were broken Gentiles, enemies of God, and they were included just as you and I are. That there is also justice and judgment that preserves and protects the Davidic lineage. No bad politician on this planet can do or undo what God has purposed to do or undo. That's good news, and you need to know that. Third, faithfulness and redemption in Christ alone for salvation of his children. He was committed to saving his children. And that commitment has never waned. It has never changed. It is not something that can be suppressed. In fact, if we would fall silent, the rocks themselves would cry out of the Davidic king who's come for the eternal kingdom. Woe be unto us if we leave it to the rocks and the trees. So, this morning, as we consider why Christ came, we have the brilliant and beautiful opportunity to celebrate the table. Because Christ didn't just come to be a baby that would be um, immortalized in these little nativity scenes. He didn't come so that we could, we could have a, a purpose, something to hang on our trees, uh, some reason to gather together every year and, and eat dry ham and exchange presents. That's not why he came. No, no, he came to die. He came so that we would have newness of life, so that we could be redeemed and restored to, to the God that we were fractured and separated from because of sin and because of our brokenness and because of the darkness and because of the principalities and powers. All that sought to destroy the glory of God. See, Christ came so that we could walk in newness of life. And this table is representative. This is why we want to begin Advent with communion. We're in three or four weeks. We're going to end with it as well because I want to make sure that the most important thing that you get out of Advent is the meaning of this table. Above all things, of all the things we could adorn the front of this room with, this is the most glorious and most beautiful. Because Christ said, as he took Meager elements, which is such an Advent-type thing to do. He took bread and he showed it to the disciples and he broke it in front of them and he said, this, he said, this, this is my body. This is my body and it is broken for you. Why? Why would his body be broken for us? Well, it was broken because of the weight of our sin, which he took on himself in totality, past, present, and future. That is incredible to me. Like, we, we almost can't comprehend. Like, we can almost, okay, okay, the past stuff I kind of get. But how in the world did he, did he take care of the future stuff too? Well, if he didn't take care of it all, guess what? You can't bear not even the weight of one. How many of you struggle with guilt and shame and past memories of things that you've done or said? How much worse would it be if, it, if that was all yours to bear for an eternity? So his body was broken by that, but not just that. There's even more good news. It was broken under the wrath of God that was due every bit of that sin. So God's wrath on our behalf as sons and daughters of the Most High God was utterly exhausted, breaking him. So when he showed them that bread and he broke it, that was the covenantal freight in what he was saying. 
And that wasn't enough. He wasn't concerned with just getting us to neutral. See, he wants us to walk in a new covenant reality and newness of life. And so he, he grabbed the cup and he said, even, even more, this is, this is this cup. It represents my blood spilled, my blood shed for the new covenant in which you're now covered. So that you could stand before God and be viewed as righteous as I am righteous. Not viewed in the midst of that sin that I've already taken care of. And not in the, the weight of you trying to figure out how to be good between the now and the not yet. But you, you are good now. And so as some theologians say it, we spend our lives becoming what we already are in Christ. If we could but remember that on a daily basis. That there is, we are not left to strive for something that has already been freely given. We are left to display the glory of that reality today. And so for us, this table is incredibly meaningful and gives great meaning to this time of year, doesn't it? The elders would come forward. <clears throat> so I just want to say a couple of things, being that that is the reality. If you, if you are not a Christian this morning, and, 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 and Christ is not your Savior, and, and none of that really makes a whole lot of sense to you, do yourself a favor. Let the elements pass over you. But recognize as they pass over you that you're, you're missing out on something deep. That you should hunger for a, a community, uh, a restoration that should pull at your heart. And maybe it doesn't for some reason. But don't take and eat of this because it won't fill you unless you've already been filled. If, in addition, you are struggling um, Actually, if you are unforgiving towards someone else, this table represents the beauty of forgiveness earned by you? No. Freely given to you by grace. So if you are unwilling to grant forgiveness to someone else, you let these elements pass over you as well. And I pray it would break your heart to see them go by you. And I pray that it would move you to remember those four women who are included in the lineage of Christ, those who would have been deemed unsavable dogs and recognize there is no one beyond saving, no one that we should not be willing to grant forgiveness if we have been granted forgiveness. Amen? And third, if you are under church discipline for some reason at a church, if you are at odds with your local church for some reason, you need to let these elements pass by you as well until that is resolved. Now, let me say this about the last two things that I mentioned. If you're working on forgiveness, it does not have to be yet resolved. You need this table to strengthen and nourish you. If you're working toward resolution in these things, I want you to take knowing that it is, it is what is represented that is going to help you get to where you want to go, to be restored to that family member or that neighbor or that church or whatever that thing is. Take knowing that your dependency is upon Christ and Christ alone. But everybody else, whether you are doubting, struggling in some form or fashion, don't feel like you've got all the I's dotted, the T's crossed, the U's in place, the L's or the P's for you reformed folk. If you don't have all that in order, that's okay as long as you have in order that Christ alone is your Savior by grace alone through faith alone. Maybe you struggle with any number of things. Maybe you didn't come in so holy this morning. What is what Christ has done that makes you holy, not your behavior? Repent 
and take and eat. Amen?